Praise the Lord. Uh, I want to uh, pick up where we were when we were last together two weeks ago. Uh, the, the, it seemed to me that the Lord kind of dropped in my heart uh, to look at the, the cases or incidences of healing in Jesus' ministry where Jesus asked people questions. I know a lot of times in, uh, in dealing with folks that uh, um, uh, it's, it seemed important to me to, to find out where people are by, by asking them questions. And there are eight times in the, um, uh, in the 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry, there are eight times where Jesus questioned somebody before he ministered to them. Uh, we looked at uh, four of them last week, or, or last time we were together. Uh, I'll go through those real quickly. Luke chapter 5, I, I'm trying to take these chronologically to, um, uh, to make it easier to, to identify. And Luke chapter 5 and verse 23 is uh, uh, the story of where they, um, the crippled man was brought in by his four friends couldn't get into the room where they where Jesus was ministering and so they took the tiling off the roof and let him down by rope on his uh, on the cot the, the little bed that he was laying on and Jesus said to him man your sins are forgiven thee and and of course the religious people were all around wondering what was going on with that who can forgive sins but God only and Jesus asked this question he said which is easier to say man rise and walk or your sins be forgiven you in other words, Jesus asked the question. It wasn't of the man that was being ministered to. He's already ministered to him. Or at least he spoke to him. It hadn't yet been completed. Jesus hadn't finished with him. But, uh, but Jesus was talking to the religious people. It's interesting to me that the first question Jesus asked in one of these incidents concerning healing was not to somebody that needed to be healed, but was to the religious people. Because religion is always going to be the roadblock to healing. Religious thinking is a roadblock to healing. In other words, the, I think the, the lesson there in this story is that if we're going to create an open channel to receive from God, we're going to have to get rid of our religious thinking. Now, religion will make you question everything. Religion will make you question the power of God. It'll make you question the willingness of God. It'll make you question your own worthiness to receive. There's all kinds of things that religion will make you question or at least attempt to make you question. Jesus asked a very simple question, which is easier to say? Be healed or your sins are forgiven you. Now, the modern-day church answers that question in, in this way. It's a lot easier to get saved or to have your sins forgiven because healing doesn't work the way it did when Jesus was here on the earth because Jesus healed because he was the Son of God. But Jesus is saying just the opposite. Jesus is saying the same power that saves is the power that heals. Same exact power, operating by the same exact principle of faith. Now, the next uh, incident of healing that we looked at was in John chapter 5 where Jesus is at the pool of Bethesda and in these five porches full of people that were sick and halt and lame and, and impotent waiting for the moving of the water, the angel would come down and trouble the water at, at uh, uh, random times. And the um, first one in got healed, and, and that was it for everybody else. Nobody else got anything. So everybody's uh, sitting there uh, under these little shade porches or whatever they were, lean-tos or whatever you want to call them, and uh, waiting for the troubling of the water, waiting for the angel to come down and trouble the water. Jesus found one man that was laying there, and he asked him, will you be made whole? Now, Jesus winds up ministering to the guy, and, and the guy really didn't, didn't respond in a, in a way that, uh, that uh, showed that he had any faith to be healed. He's making excuses for why he can't be healed. You know, a lot of people in the church world do that too. Make excuses for why they can't be healed rather than identifying and, and asking themselves Bible questions to identify what the problem is or what they need to change or adjust in their thinking so that they can be healed. Jesus looked first and foremost for faith. Wilt thou be made whole? The man said, well, I don't have anybody to put me in the water. 
And other people beat me in there, and so I don't get anything. And so Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, there's a symbolic uh, meaning to this story uh, that, that we'll mention just real quickly. But I, I'm not too interested in symbolism other than just to, to know, what, know that it's there and, and so forth. Whereas the Pool of Bethesda was the place where uh, all those that were in Jerusalem were looking for an angel. God's agent to come down and minister healing by troubling the water. Jesus changed that. He's saying, no, I'm the one sent from God and I'm troubling the waters of mankind. I'm stirring the waters of mankind. I'm the source of healing from God now, not the angel stirring the water. And so he asked the man, wilt thou be made whole? Couldn't find faith on the part of the individual, but to show that God's healing mercy goes even beyond the knowledge of mankind. He said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And he did. Now, the next occasion where Jesus questioned somebody or had something to say to them was over in Matthew chapter 12. It tells us that Jesus was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus went to church regularly. I think it'd be good to follow his example. A lot of Christians talk about staying home and worshiping God at home. That's not the way Jesus did it. Okay, anyway. Um, Jesus went to the Sabbath, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and there was a man with a withered hand. And Jesus ministered to him, told him to stretch forth his hand, and he was healed. And the religious people are there. Religious people go to church. And the religious people were there and said, uh, you know, what's he doing healing on the Sabbath day? There are six days in which men ought to work. In them, they ought to, ought to be healed and not on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is a holy day unto the Lord. And Jesus asked, which one of you have a sheep if it falls down in the well? Will you not lift him out to water him? How much better is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. In other words, Jesus asked questions, again, of the religious people, not of the man that needed to be healed, but asked questions of the religious people to identify God works on the Sabbath day. It's not about your traditions. It's about who God is. It's not about what you think about it. It's about who God is. You know, I think we'd get a lot further if we'd focus on who God is when it comes to healing. Everybody's thinking about themselves and how things are supposed to be done. How do we know how things are supposed to be done? Except God reveals it to us. Shouldn't it be about him? Well, that seems to be the, the, the case that Jesus, or the point that Jesus tried to make. Finally, the last one that we looked at last week uh, was Luke chapter 8 and verse 45, where it tells the story of the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus asked the question after she came in, she, after she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that the virtue, or King James says virtue is literally the word power, has gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched me? And the disciples seeing the multitude thronging him saying, master, the multitude throngeth thee and sayest thou who touched me? But he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. Now the point is very simply this. Everybody that could get in arm's length of Jesus was touching him. The whole crowd was jostling Jesus and his group of disciples as they tried to walk through and get to Jairus' house. Everybody that can reach out and touch him and make contact with him is making contact with him. But Jesus asked one simple question, who touched me? In other words, Jesus is saying of all the people making contact with me, one person did it in a different way. After she, knowing uh, the woman knowing what was done in her, fell down before him and told him all the truth. And Jesus said unto her, daughter, your faith has made you whole. So it's so often that people have the idea, boy, if only I could have lived when Jesus was here on the earth. 
If I could have gone to where Jesus was ministering personally and had him lay hands on me or something like that, have him speak the word to me, then I could receive my healing. But Jesus showed us that very few, at least in this crowd, in this instance, only one person out of however much this great multitude is that's following him down the road, only one person got anything because only one person believed when they reached out to touch him. Same action, same physical touch was made, but one person had a different attitude of heart and got something where nobody else did. That kind of blows people's idea of how Jesus ministered healing, doesn't it? See, most everybody thinks that Jesus just had the power and he just indiscriminately doled it out. But that's not true. Jesus responded. The power of God responded then and now to to faith, the act of faith. Faith which is of the heart. Now, tonight, let's start over in in, uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse... uh, Oh, about verse 27, I guess. This is a story of two blind men. There are a couple of times where blind men came to Jesus. Um, Jesus has just raised um, Jairus' daughter up from, from her deathbed. She had died by the time he got there, and he raised her up. And it said uh, in verse 26, as uh, after this occurred, it says, In fame thereof went abroad into all, the na- all that land. And when Jesus departed thence, meaning from then, from that place, from Jairus' house, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. Now why would Jesus ask if they believed that he could? That's what that means, isn't it? Believe ye that I'm able to do this. Jesus is saying, Do you believe that I can do this? Why would he question that? It's very possible, and in my thinking likely, that these two blind men have been part of the crowd that's trying to reach out and touch Jesus on the way to Jairus' house, of whom the woman with the issue of blood was one. Maybe they couldn't get to him. Maybe they did get to him and touched him and didn't get any results. So Jesus leaves and these two blind men follow. Apparently nobody else is following It identifies them, singles them out. So these two blind men continue to follow Jesus. Maybe everybody else that didn't get anything, maybe the ones that touched him and didn't didn't get anything, have given up. We know by the time Jesus gets to Jairus' house, he puts everybody out, he sends everybody away. But these two blind men apparently hang on. They're going to wait Jesus out. That shows a little bit of determination, doesn't it? And so here are these two blind men followed Jesus and cried out saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Now, can I ask you a question? And I don't mean to be unkind about this, but how do blind men follow him? That seems to me to be kind of difficult. If they're not going to be led by the hand, which they may have been, maybe somebody was there to help them. But the Bible is very specific about saying Jesus went on his way, came to the house, didn't even stop for them came to the house, and they followed him in. Now, in any case, that it was some distance. I don't know how far it would be because we don't know what the house is that he went to. But in any case, that it was some distance because they had to follow after him to get there. I mean, for example, the Bible didn't say, and Jesus went next door to Jairus' house and sat down, and then there were two blind guys. It indicates that there was some journey that they traveled, doesn't it? I don't know how far, maybe not far. But either, either way, even if it was a short journey, it's a journey that blind men have to make. You're going to have to be pretty serious about that, it seems to me. 
if you're going to take the journey with him. Jesus let them make the journey, whatever difficulties, whatever obstacles there were to overcome, he let them struggle to overcome them. And when he was coming to the house and they finally got there, maybe a short time later, maybe a long time later, Jesus asked them one simple question. Do you believe that I can do this? Folks, I would submit to you, if I was one of the apostles standing by, I would have said, look, Jesus, if they didn't believe you could do this, why would they have come? Yet Jesus knew something that was very important that so much of the church world seems to miss. And that is, it's not what it looks like, it's what you say. He needs to get them speaking words from their heart about what they believe. So he asked them. He questioned their faith. He said, do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe that I can do this? I don't believe Jesus asked things indiscriminately. I don't think he asked them by accident. I think the fact that he asked this person, do you believe that I can do this, is an indication that they're going to have to set aside Everything about their experience, every part of their life experience. Maybe they were born blind. How would a person born blind gain faith that Jesus could make him blind? It seems to me, and I, I'm, uh, again, I'm, I may not have any credibility to speak to this issue, but it seems to me that if a person once saw and then lost their sight, they'd have a little bit greater, um, I don't know if confidence is the word, but a little greater tendency to believe that they could regain their sight rather than if they never had it to begin with. It's just a thought. I could be wrong on that, but it's a thought anyway, huh? So Jesus asked him a question. He said, do you believe that I can do this? And notice what they said. Yea, Lord. That's it. And they responded, yes, Lord. Now that may not seem like a big discourse on faith, but that's faith in action. Faith is believing in the heart and speaking with the mouth. Do they have any reason, any physical evidence to suggest that Jesus can heal them? Nothing other than what they've heard about him. Nothing other than what they've seen it happen in the woman with the issue of blood. But I would submit to you that if they saw the woman with the issue of blood healed just a short time before, they saw countless numbers of people reaching out and touching Jesus and not getting anything. So that in and of itself would not be an automatic faith builder, would it? He's seen or they've, they've heard of what happened in Jairus' house. So that would certainly build their faith, I would think. But Jesus still gets them to speak it. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. Notice what Jesus said. Jesus touched their eyes, then touched he their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it unto you. You know, it's an interesting thing. Jesus said over and over and over again to people, according to your faith, be it done unto you. It's almost like He's not giving them any more than what they'll believe for. Now that might seem hard. That might seem hard from God's standpoint. But he's teaching us a lesson. Once again here's another lesson. And that is it's not just what God can do. It's what you can believe for him to do. You remember the, um, the ten lepers? The ten lepers that were, uh, they came to Jesus cried out and said basically the same thing. That these two blind men did. Thou son of David have mercy on us. Jesus cried out and said go show yourself to the priests. Well only healed lepers do that. Lepers don't go in public. You sure don't show yourself to the priests. Unless you've been healed of leprosy. That was the Old Testament uh, method or means. 
of proving that you were no longer contaminated with the contagious disease. So he said to him, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were healed. They were healed as they went. Not when Jesus spoke, but as they acted on what Jesus told them to do. Then one guy, one out of the ten, turns around and comes back to Jesus. And he falls down before Jesus and worships him. And Jesus asked a question. It was pretty interesting. He said, well, where are the other nine? Weren't they healed too? In other words, Jesus knew that he spoke healing power. It looked to him like all ten were leaving together. So all ten should get the same results, shouldn't it? But he says, is this the only one? Is only one of the ten returned back to give God glory for what he's done? And then Jesus said, spoke to him, spoke to the man, because he had returned to give God glory for what God had already done for him, for what Jesus had already ministered to him. He said to him, be thou made whole. He made him whole. I don't think I've got the words exactly right. But he spoke to him, he ministered to him, something else. He said, oh, this is what he said. He said, your faith has made you whole. Indicating that the man got something more than the other nine did. Indicating that the power of God then restored and replaced the the body parts that the leprosy had eaten. Now, if that's the case, and we're, we're having to make a little bit of assumption there, but it seems to make sense. If that's the case... Why did God not restore the other, ten, the other nine whatever body parts had been eaten by leprosy in them too? Because it's according to your faith. It's whatever you're willing to believe God for. According to your faith, be it done unto you. Let's look at the next one real quickly. The next one is in, Matthew, is in uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9. This is a, I want to spend just a few more minutes on this one than I might the others. Because this is a real important one in my opinion. Mark chapter 9 tells us a story of how Jesus has just come back from the mountain of transfiguration. That was when Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up to the mountaintop to pray. And while they were there, Moses and Elijah appeared. Jesus' garment started shining brighter than the noonday sun. He was transfigured before their eyes. Moses and Elijah appeared and a voice spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Peter and John, uh, well, Peter spoke up. He didn't know what was going on. He just said, man, this is wonderful. He just got excited about the presence of God. He didn't know what it was for or, or anything else. And so he spoke up and said, man, this is great. Let's build three tents here. In other words, let's stay in this tent forever. I felt like that sometimes in the presence of God too, haven't you? Let's just stay here forever. Well, it's not there for you to stay in it forever. It's there for you to experience it and then take it back into the world. So then the voice came from heaven and said, uh, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, when they come back from that experience, Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anybody what you saw. And so the only record we have of it is after the fact, after Jesus' resurrection and the gospel accounts of it. So coming back from this, uh, this uh, experience... It says uh, in verse 14, Mark 9, verse 14, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with, the, questioning with them. That's never good news. The religious people talking to the disciples was never a positive. 
Because the disciples didn't know enough. The apostles didn't know enough at that point to be able to handle them and deal with them. However, as soon as Jesus is raised from the dead and they're filled with the Holy Ghost, now they're equipped to stand in front of the same council that crucified Jesus and tell them what for. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, in other words, when they saw Jesus coming, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. I personally think all the spirits, evil spirits are dumb, but this one is keeping him from being able to talk. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnashes with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Please notice that phrase. And they could not. Now, if, if, uh, if we wanted to take the time, we could turn back to Matthew chapter 10, which, is, which predates this occurrence, where it says Jesus gave to his disciples the authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal all manner of sickness and disease. So you got Matthew chapter 10 telling us that Jesus has already given them power to cast out devils or authority to cast out devils. But here it says that they couldn't. So what does that mean? See, some people look at scriptures like that and they say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, it's not full of contradictions. Jesus gave them the power, but something was keeping it from working. Just that simple. Jesus knew what keeps the power from working where the disciples did not. We have other instances just a couple of chapters before. In the, in the gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 6. Where Jesus was in his own hometown of Nazareth. And it says in Mark 6, 5. And he could there do no mighty work. Doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. He was prevented from it. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So what does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus understood that unbelief keeps the power from working even through him. Well if unbelief kept the power of God from working in Jesus' life and ministry. When he was there to minister to others, when the power of God was available to minister and to do signs and wonders and miracles, how much more do you think unbelief is going to hinder us from ministering the power of God today? But see, the modern day church just says, well, if that's what God wants, then God's going to do it no matter what. That's not how it worked in Jesus' ministry. Why would we think that it would work differently for us than it worked for him? That doesn't make sense to me. But people have tried things and failed without knowledge, trying to do the same thing that the apostles did in this case, not got any results, and so then they start making excuses for why it didn't work. Jesus doesn't have to make excuses. He knows what the problem is, so notice what he asked the Father. He said, he answered him, verse 19, he answered him and said, him means the Father that's been talking to him. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. In other words, he's saying, you're the one that doesn't have any faith. You're part of a faithless generation. I won't always be here on the earth. You better learn how this faith stuff works while I'm still here. Bring the little boy over here. Now, why does he tell him to bring the little boy over here, over to Jesus? Is Jesus going to do something that supersedes the man's unbelief? Well, if he is, I'm going to ask the question, why didn't he do that in Nazareth? Again, Mark 6, 5, and he could there do no mighty work, save or except he lays his hands on a few folks with minor ailments, and he healed them, and he went about their cities, their, their villages teaching. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. He's trying to overcome their unbelief. He can't make the power of God work as long as they're in unbelief. So he doesn't try to make the power of God work instead of their unbelief or to overcome their unbelief. He tries to work on the unbelief part. 
He doesn't work on the power end. He works on the unbelieving end, the, the, the receiving end. Because he knows the power of God, the healing power of God is being hindered by the unbelief of the individuals. So what does Jesus know here? Exactly the same thing. He knows that it's unbelief on the part of the Father that's keeping the power that he has given the disciples to cast out devils from working. So he says, O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, brought the boy over to Jesus. And when the boy saw him, straightway the spirit tore him, the spirit that was inside of him, tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father says, since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It sounds like the father is desperate. He doesn't stop and answer Jesus' question. Well, he's been like this since he was a little boy. No, he goes into detail and he said, and sometimes it tries to destroy him by throwing him in the fire. Sometimes it tries to drown him. But, oh, my goodness, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. In other words, he's operating just like many modern-day Christians do. Oh, God, just do something. If you're able to do anything, Father. It's almost like the Father's challenging Jesus' power or his ability. Now, let's uh, stop and consider this for a minute. What is Jesus' ability in this case? What can Jesus do? Well, if we're talking generally, the Bible said Jesus had the spirit without measure. That would mean there's no limit to the power of God that's available to Jesus. But remember, the power of God is always hindered by unbelief. At least it was in Jesus' ministry. We can conclude, rightly so, that that unbelief today will hinder the power of God from working just like it did when Jesus was here on the earth. But the Father is almost challenging Jesus' uh, ability, saying, if you can do anything about this, have compassion on us and help us. Well, now let's look at it from Jesus' perspective. What can he do in this case? Nothing unless he can get the Father out of unbelief. Because it's not a matter of the power. It's not a question of is there enough power. It's not a question of do I have enough Holy Spirit anointing upon me. The question is, what can you believe so that the power flows and ministers healing and deliverance to your son? So notice what Jesus responds. The question to the Father, from the Father is, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. There's the request. And Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, Jesus throws it right back on him. He says, wait a minute. This isn't a matter of what I can do. And, and really, if you study out the Greek language that this was written in originally, there's no punctuation, but the words that are used express his sarcasm. Jesus literally says, if I can, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, it's not a matter of the power. The question is, are you going to believe what's necessary so that the power flows into your son to heal him or deliver him? What's he doing? Jesus is doing the same thing here that we saw him doing over John chapter 5. He's trying to get faith exercised from the, on the part of the individual that has authority here. The fact that it calls him his son indicates that the son is, is uh, still of uh, uh, what we would consider underage, so he's under the father's authority. So rather than talking to the son or, or trying to get some kind of information from the son, he talks to the father. The father's in authority in this case. And so he says, if you can believe, then all things, including deliverance for your son, all things are possible to him that believes. 
And notice what the father says. The father says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, we've said this over and over again, but it bears repetition. I don't think that's a great statement of faith. I wouldn't recommend using that one. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because he's talking as much about what he doesn't believe as what he does believe. However, what changed him from being, O faithless generation, in verse 19, to Lord, I believe. Has anything positive happened to make his guy, to, to give this guy a reason to believe? I would submit to you that the only thing that's happened has been negative as far as the power of the devil is concerned. There's no power of God being shown. It's just the devil putting on his show once again in front of Jesus, just like he's been doing since this boy was young. So what causes this man to say, Lord, I believe? Even though he has the uh, help my unbelief, I really wish he hadn't put that part in there, but the, the Bible's a true and accurate representation of what happened. That's just where he's at. So he doesn't go from unbelief to great faith in one step, that's for sure. But what causes him to go from, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, to Lord, I believe? There's no circumstance that's changed in his favor. There's nothing that's happened that would cause him to say, well, wait a minute, there's hope here. Except for the one thing Jesus said, and that is, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. That one statement, if you can believe, all things are possible. In other words, what you want is available to you if you can believe. And he doesn't stop and say, oh, I can't believe you're going to have to do this for me. He says, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Notice that in order for the boy to be healed, and he is, Jesus rebukes the spirit and he fell down. And some people thought that the little boy was dead. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he was well. But in order for Jesus to exercise power over the devil, which he had, but in order for that power to work for the benefit of the father and the son, Jesus has to get this man from, I don't believe, which is why the disciples couldn't do this and take care of the problem to begin with, to Lord, I believe. And the one thing that Jesus said is the only thing that he had to go on. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. If he didn't have faith in verse 19, something had to happen in order for him to have the faith of Lord, I believe, in verse 24. He had to hear something to go from the unbelief of verse 19 to Lord, I believe, in verse 24. What did he hear? What he heard was Jesus say, if you can believe. What you want is available if you can believe. You know what's amazing to me? I've been uh, dealing with um, uh, ministering to to sick people in uh, some form or another for about, uh, well, almost 30 years. Most of it is pastoring here at the church. Some of it was uh, in the ministry that we had before we started the church in 1986. And then uh, a couple of years of it was working with Brother Hagin. And that was more as a spectator than anything else. But I learned a lot during that time too. But in dealing with, uh, with people either personally or watching Brother Hagin deal with sick people, I found that a lot of people, when they find out that healing is available to them if they can just believe, I found out that, that uh, a good number of people, I certainly wouldn't say the majority, but it, uh, it, it might be getting close to the, to the majority of people, throw up their hands and say, well, I don't know if I, I just can't do it. And they throw it back over on God or try to throw it back over on God and say, God, you're going to have to do this for me. And Jesus rejects that position with this man. 
Now, since Jesus never changes, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, since he rejected that position with this man to say, oh, don't worry about believing. I'll take care of this on my own. Why would we think that he would do that today? In other words, people give up through a lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. People give up on the very simple step that this father took that got him his results. And that is his willingness. Here's the step that he took. He became willing to say, I believe. That's the only thing that changed with this guy. He goes from saying it doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work to saying, Lord, I believe. And that came from Jesus saying one word, one sentence, one thought, expressing one thought. He said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. What if Jesus appeared to you, whatever you're facing, whether it's physical or financial or or whatever the case is. What if Jesus appeared to you and said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. I would take that as an encouragement. I wouldn't hang my head and say, oh, Jesus just told me I can't have it. No, in fact, Jesus is telling you, you can have it, but it's up to you. That's why he said so many times in dealing with other people, according to your faith, be it unto you. He's really saying the same thing to this man, just in different words. According to your faith, be it unto you. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And the man makes one step, one simple step, and may may I suggest that it's a baby step. He says, Lord, I believe. I feel pretty unsure about this, but Lord, I believe. And that was all it took for Jesus to minister to the guy. What would Jesus say to you or me? Would he commend us? Would he put his arm around our shoulder and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You're walking by faith and not by sight. You'll have what you, what you say. Or would he try to have to try to get us out of an unbelieving position? That's why these things are uh, caught my attention at least about the things that Jesus said. Let's look at the next one, Luke chapter 14. Here's another case, very similar to one that's occurred before when Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. Luke chapter 14, let's start reading in verse, uh, now we'll start in verse 1. And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. I'm not sure what dropsy is. The, the definitions that I look at and the other translations that I look at, the closest thing that I can get to a, a definition or an explanation is a swollen joint. Somebody that was, whose body was swollen up and, and retaining water. And, and there is, apparently dropsy is a very painful thing. It doesn't go by the name dropsy nowadays. But it's a, a very painful thing. But this guy was, uh, was swollen up and it, it restricted his movements. But it wasn't a life-threatening uh, condition that uh, is near as I can identify but anyway it says and behold there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy and Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees saying is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day you know one thing I like about Jesus he challenged religious people he didn't try to coexist with them he didn't try to compromise with them he challenged them I think that's one thing that always drew me to brother Hagin brother Hagin would challenge religion I don't mean face-to-face. I don't know many religious people that would come and, and, uh, and stand face-to-face with Brother Hagin. 
He, Brother Hagin told some stories about how in his early days of ministry that happened and he debated with some folks and would whip them every time in the debate. So I don't know anybody that really knew the word well enough that would debate Brother Hagin, but there were always people taking shots from the side. But Brother Hagin, instead of shying away from those things, Brother Hagin would hit them head on. Now, he never would criticize the individuals. He didn't make it personal. But he always criticized or, or always addressed, shouldn't say criticized, he always addressed the issues where people would question, well, if, if God heals today, why this and why that and why the other? Brother Hagin would always come back and challenge religion. I guess he got that from, from Jesus. Jesus asked the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace and he took him and healed him and let him go. Jesus is daring them to say something. Daring them to say something. But he heals this guy. And then he lets him go. And then Jesus answered them saying, which of you has an ass or an ox falleth into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. Finally, the last one we want to look at is Matthew chapter 20. You know, there's a lot of things that we encounter nowadays where religion says healing doesn't work the way it did when Jesus was here on the earth. Healing power of God, signs and wonders and miracles don't work now like they did in the early church. When the last apostle died, all that was done away with. How do they answer the miracles that take place? Most of the time they just say it's coincidence. How would, uh, how would religious people, people say that the, uh, the power of God, the healing power of God doesn't work now as it did then? How would they answer the testimonies that we heard earlier in the service? They'd say, oh, that's just coincidence. The antibiotics just worked faster than the doctors thought that they would. They'd give credit to the medicine. They'd give credit to the medical community. Because you know doctors have made great advances. But you know, poor old God... He used to be in the healing business. He used to be in the signs and wonders and miracle business. But, you know, he's fallen off the throne now. Matthew chapter 20. Let's start reading in verse 29. As they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside. Here's two other blind guys. Two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. Almost word for word what the other guy said. Now, I've made this comment before, but it's important to, uh, for you to understand. Anybody that says, calls Jesus thou son of David, they're identifying that they recognize him as the Messiah. That's a messianic statement. In other words, we realize that you're the Christ. From what we've heard, we believe that you're the Christ. O Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on us. And the multitude rebuked them because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still. Now here's a different situation. These guys didn't follow him anywhere. They're sitting by the side of the road. When they hear it's Jesus, they hear the commotion from the crowd coming by, I guess. And they ask, Who is, what's, this, what's going on? Who is this? Who's coming? Somebody says, Jesus. And these guys began immediately crying out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Now, there's only one reason that they would cry out for Jesus to have mercy on them, and that is they must have heard that Jesus was healing the sick. I don't know if specifically they've heard that Jesus has healed blind people, but they've heard of Jesus' healing ministry in some form or another. Otherwise, what's the point in crying out? They might say, oh, wow, I wish we could see. I bet, it's, I bet Jesus really looks sharp. 
I've heard he's got this coat and it's seamless and he's a real snappy dresser. But instead they're crying out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. They had to have heard that Jesus was healing the sick here on the earth in his earthly ministry. And what happens? People around them saying, shh, don't talk. Don't create a stir. You'll draw attention to yourself, which is exactly what they wanted. So they cried out even louder. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. And they cried loud enough to where Jesus stopped. Now this time he doesn't make these guys follow him. This time he stops because they will not be silenced. Just like the other two blind men that we looked at in um, um, Matthew chapter 9. The other two blind guys wouldn't be held back even though Jesus didn't stop on his way. These two guys won't be shut up. Both groups of two, both pairs of these two blind people are operating on the same principle. And that is they will not be denied. Did you hear in uh, Desiree's testimony earlier about when the doctor said this about her mother? She stomped her foot on the floor and said, no, I won't have it that way. There's a determination of faith. I'm sure somebody standing by would have looked at, looked at uh, uh, what she was doing and said, wow, that's pretty violent. Well, Jesus said the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. In other words, you're going to have to stand up and say, this is what I will have or this is what I will not allow. So Jesus stood still, verse 32, and called them and said, what will you that I shall do unto you? In other words, what do you want? Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't assume anything? He could tell they were blind. But all they've done done is ask for mercy. Okay, what is it that you want? And they said unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. What caused Jesus to have compassion on these guys? That it wouldn't let other people shut them up from what belonged to them. They wouldn't let other people keep them from what Jesus knew God had sent him to do here on the earth for them personally. I can't tell you how many people I've seen over the years that have let other people, maybe well-meaning people, maybe family members, whoever, talk them out of what belonged to them. But not these guys. They would not be talked out of it. How about you? You going to let somebody talk you out of it? Because you can find a lot of people to tell you what you believe in, uh, what you see in the Word and what the Word says is not really what it means and not what belongs to you. You'll have a lot of help if you want to feel sorry for yourself. Poor old me. Doesn't work this way like it used to. Are you going to let yourself be talked out of it? I want to turn to one last scripture. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly, but I think we may have looked at this last week. And this is kind of what got me on this track. That's uh, Mark chapter 7. Here's the story of a woman that comes to Jesus seeking something for her daughter. I'm going to start reading in verse 24. And from thence he rose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an um, unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of his daughter. 
But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And what she's looking for is healing and deliverance for her daughter. And Jesus said, That belongs to the children of Israel. Now, we know that the Bible says the prophecy about Jesus is that he would go from Israel, Israel would reject him, and then he'd go to the Gentiles. Well, Jesus hadn't yet gone to the Gentiles. He did spend some of his ministry, the latter part of his ministry, uh, the last uh, year of his ministry, in ministering to the Gentiles after the Jews had rejected him and he wouldn't walk in Jerusalem or Judea anymore. Then he went into some of the Gentile areas. But this is before that time. And so Jesus is very simply saying, you're a Gentile, this doesn't belong to you yet. It's not right to take the children's bread, that which God sent, that healing, that deliverance that God sent for his children, his covenant partners, the descendants of Abraham, and to cast it to dogs. Now, in case you don't know, everybody outside the Jewish nation was considered to be and called dogs. Because the Jews have always had the idea and understood that they were God's chosen people. Which means if we're the chosen people, you're not. And so they weren't shy about calling the rest of the world dogs. Now the rest of the world didn't like being called dogs. And that was one of the reasons there was such hatred and animosity between the Gentiles and the Jews. But anyway, Jesus says it's not right or appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs eat under the table, eat from the children's crumbs. Now, uh, Luke's account goes into, uh, or I'm sorry, it's Matthew's account, Matthew 15, goes into a little bit more detail about this. But what I want you to see is verse 29. And he said unto her, For this saying, go your way. The devil has gone out of your daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter was laid upon the bed. And here's what I want you to see. And here's, uh, uh, here's what we see happening over and over and over again with Jesus. And that is, in certain cases, this being one of them, um, people just express their faith. The woman with the issue of blood reached out and touched Jesus. She came in the press behind before she said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Jesus, after hearing the story, said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. So there were times and there were occasions where somebody's faith was exercised. The guy being let down through the roof was another example. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. That's when he questions the religious people, which is easier to say, rise, take up your bed and walk or or your sins are forgiven. But he saw their faith in action. There were times where people either, either exhibited their faith through their action or the words that they spoke. This is the case, or in other cases, some of the ones that we've looked at, there are other occasions where Jesus had to ask them questions to get them to express their faith. But the same principle is, it holds true in every case, and that is Jesus was always looking for faith. Well, if he was always looking for faith when he was here ministering healing in his earthly ministry, I wonder what he's looking for now. Any reason to think that he's looking for anything different? If faith was necessary... For the healing power of God to affect the healing and a cure that God sent it to, to affect. When Jesus was here on the earth. Then why wouldn't we assume and understand that the same faith is going to be necessary to affect the healing and a cure in our day. From whatever it is that the devil is trying to attack you with. The point is very simple. Faith is necessary. And so Jesus is always looking for faith. In this case, he didn't have to search for it. He didn't have to ask any questions of the woman. He just simply said, here's the reason why it's not right for your daughter to be healed at this time. Yet she turned it around and argued her case based on what he said. Now, folks, I would submit to you, uh, again, Matthew's account said, 
uh, Jesus spoke to her said a little bit more to her. The conversation goes a little bit further. And Jesus said, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. But I like this verse of scripture because it very simply states, for this saying, the devil has gone out of your daughter. Because of your words, because of the attitude of your heart, from your spirit, not because of anything you see or feel, but from your heart, because you ignored the opportunity to get discouraged by hearing from Jesus himself, saying it's not right for you to be healed yet or for your daughter to receive healing yet. Because she turned that around and said, yeah, but even the dogs eat crumbs. She didn't take offense. If this happened today, there'd be a lawsuit the next day. But she's not trying to get money. She's not trying to get legal assistance. She's trying to get healing for her daughter. So she says, yeah, truth, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs that fall. And Jesus said, for this saying, the devil has gone out of your daughter. If this was a matter of healing rather than deliverance from the devil, he would have said, for this saying, your daughter is healed. Folks, I want you to understand, for your sayings, you receive your healing. Another way of saying that is for your words. Because of these words that you spoke, healing is yours. If that was true in Jesus' day, that's true today. We're healed by words. We're healed by words believed. The word of God believed and words from our mouth spoken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to believe. We thank you, Father. It's such a privilege to walk by faith. I feel so hard, so sorry for people that have had it easy in their lives, Lord. People that have never learned the value of walking by faith, walking according to what your word says instead of what we see and feel. Thank you, Lord. That in every situation, we'll take the same opportunity and learn from these examples. We'll take the opportunity to express our faith in word or action. We declare, Father, that we believe Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we are healed. Thank you, Father, that for these sayings, we're healed just like the woman was. For our faith, we are made whole just like the woman with the issue of blood. Thank you, Lord, that you deal with us according to our faith. And we believe we receive healing. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.